Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Econ Talk Book Club on Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Our guide, again, is Dan Klein. Dan, thanks for being part of this uh, book club experience. My pleasure. And our topic for today are Parts 3, 4, and 5. You can find online versions of the book, uh, audio versions of the book, other resources at econtalk.org slash bookclub.html, and along with previous episodes, of course. And we'll be doing uh, one more episode after this on the last part of the book, uh, parts six and seven. Uh, I want to say as an introduction that the first two parts of the book that we talked about in episodes two and three, I found a little bit slow. Um and a little bit dry. I enjoyed them, but it was hard going, especially the reading. The conversation I enjoyed a great deal, Dan, but the, the reading was a bit slow. This part is totally um, uh, different for me. I found parts three and four and five to be utterly fascinating. The writing style is dramatically livelier. It's funnier. It's more eloquent. It's deeper. It's more profound. And I've just I found myself thinking a great deal about the ideas. And um, for those of you who perhaps have been listening without reading or just enjoying the podcast, reading part three by itself would be a profitable activity for your uh, brain and soul. <laughs> and um, although, of course, I, I recommend parts one and two as well. So with that introduction, I'm going to turn it over to Dan. He's going to uh, start us off with some observations about the impartial spectator, and uh, which, which runs through this section a great deal, these Hi. sections. Um, so before we turn to be just the start of part three and work our way through, I thought I would say a little bit about uh, some of the general things that are going on here. Um, Smith's general approach or uh, principle that he's using throughout the book, what might be called an organon, organon, I think the word is organon, organon is the word, I'm sorry, it took me. I don't know what that word <laughs> organon. is. Um, like actually in, in, in microeconomic theory, uh, we have an organon of utility maximization. It's sort of like a principle that we just use. We kind of we kind of see the world this way through this lens. I'm not saying actually that's necessarily a good organon, but um, that's what the word means. It means it's a principle applied in inquiry, perhaps scientific or scholarly inquiry, almost as a matter of method, as like a convention, the way we approach it. The Weltanschauung. I guess so. Yeah, it just is. To, just to pick a word, <laughs> a yeah. language word that. So what is Smith's organon? Which means a worldview, sorry. <clears throat> what is Smith's organon? We've already alluded to it. It's that moral judgment is always enshrouded in some kind of sympathy, some kind of spectatorial sympathy. That is the organon of Smith in this book. That's sort of the principle he insists on and follows through with. Moral judgment is always enshrouded in some kind of spectatorial sympathy. Okay? And 
wherever necessary, he will make that work, even if it means kind of inventing the spectator with whom you're sympathizing to kind of provide that enshrouding of a moral judgment. And he, he, he is very consistent with this. I just wanted to highlight a couple of passages. And, you know, I, I, I find this a very provocative um, idea. And the more I think about it, the more I think there might be something to it, something deep to it, the idea that it's going on subconsciously, instinctually. It's something that maybe we internalize when we're infants with our parents telling good, bad, you know, and everything else before we even know what those words mean, just the tones uh, and the, of their voices and so on. Um, and, it's, and it's very deep in our heads. And I believe that psychological research is, is finding more and more in line with this. Can I, can I just sure, add something to that? Sure. It's not just, in my reading of the book, it's not just the spectatorial view that motivates or explains or creates morality. It's also happiness and our pride, self-esteem, self-worth, uh, feelings of attractiveness, beauty, uh, a whole range of things comes from what people think of us, and that's a very disturbing view in many ways. I think when you think about it a lot, and I think it's a very—that's why I agree with you. It's a very deep idea. The idea that um, I think most of us like the idea that we just live by our principles. I don't care what other people think. I, you know, I do what's right, or or I do. I, I'm my. I'm going to be myself. I'm not going to be. Uh, swayed yeah. by other people's perceptions of me, and that that as you call it, organon that that worldview that um, framework is really profound. It, it, it makes it very difficult if if you're aware of it. And one of the reasons I found reading this book so affecting is that as you start to read it and you start thinking of yourself as being observed by those spectators, be they friends or strangers, partial or impartial, uh, it, it's, it, it's not a comfortable place to be. Uh, I don't like the idea. I don't think most people like the idea that, that we would respond to those essentially incentives of how people view us. We like to think, oh, I just, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, my, own, I'm my own man. I'm my own person. Uh, I'm, as I said, the idea that I'm going to be myself but if we view ourselves as others see us, suddenly we're not just ourselves anymore, and that is a little bit jarring, a little bit strange. And most of the time, we don't think about it. Yeah. We just we don't think about it consciously. But what Smith's saying is, we think about it unconsciously all the time. Right. And that's very it's a very provocative view. Yeah, he does though allow for independence, right? He does. does? He, absolutely, he does. But it's an it, he, he allows for independence of those external actual spectators. Right, but it's an independence founded on a dependence of a kind of internal spectator, right, which itself is sort of derived from society. Correct, and that's the that's the complexity of this. There's there's we talked earlier about the layers of the onion. Uh, there, there's a simultaneity, a bouncing back and forth constantly in the first part of part three for me of the man within, meaning the way I view myself. The man without, the way I view others viewing me, 
but that in yeah. turn starts to affect the man within. I mean, it's a very yeah. complicated system. I just wanted to share a couple of passages on, on this Organon thing. He says, um, this is on page 165, what is agreeable to our moral faculties is fit and right and proper to be done. Okay, so what's fit and right and proper to be done is what is agreeable or sympathetic or sympathized with by, by these moral faculties. He's like defining rightness as the spectatorial sympathy which, with such a, uh, uh, a moral faculty, which he's in, in the context is like a spectatorial being. Um, uh, elsewhere, he writes, all such sentiments suppose the idea of some other being who is the natural judge of the person that feels them, and that is only by sympathy with the decisions of this arbiter of his conduct, in other words, my sympathy with the arbiter of my conduct, that I, I'll say I, can conceive either the triumph of self-applause or the shame of self-condemnation. So even for internal self-condemnation or self-applause, it is by it is enshrouded to you, I, I think it's a good word to use perhaps enshrouded in this sense of sympathy with something right and that's that's so that's that's like his always going back to and although most of the book is dealing with morality he he every once in a while has explicit chapters on it on aesthetics on beauty physical beauty artistic beauty literary beauty mm-hmm. uh, and it, I'm inevitably drawn to the idea of the reader over your shoulder as a writer. I always have an implicit reader over my shoulder. Sometimes it's my wife who could literally be over my shoulder, but often it's a friend or a kind of reader that I have in mind reading this and reacting to the words. And again, I think to come back to my point about the discomfort, uh, we tend to look down on writers who write to be popular, who write to find lots of impartial spectators, whereas the writer who's obscure and innovative and, and nobody likes, oh, but he's an artist because he, he goes his own way. Um, Smith, you know, it's, it, it, he's not judging that, I, I don't think, but, but it forces you to think about that tension in writing for your audience versus writing for yourself. A person who writes just for himself, yeah. who's not a very sympathetic person, is going to have a lonely it's, life. But a person who writes for himself, who happens to write for others as well, is going to be very successful. Yeah. It's totally a tension of deciding which, what your implied audience is going to be. And you could argue, and, and Smith kind of, I think, ducks this issue most of the time. You could argue that Smith's really talking, because of his focus on what's on propriety, that it's a moral relativism, right? Because it's not – there are very few alt- – but well, let me say it differently. I think Smith – correct me if I'm wrong. I think Smith has has absolutes of what is the good. But he sort of assumes everybody shares those, at least in British society, so that what others think of you fitting in is sufficient. But, of course, in a brutal society, fitting in is means being a brutal. So it's a weird – this focus on the spectator in a way – is a justification for the norms of society, good or bad, being in harmony, which is one of his themes. Mm-hmm. But I think actually he's a little stronger than that. I think he actually does believe that the norms of his society, at least, were 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 good, were just, not just fit. Yeah, that's those are big themes. Um, I'm, I'm I think I'm going to I'm reluctant to jump into that. Okay, there there there. That's let, we'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> do all that, but because okay. okay. um, the relativism versus universalism, 
Um, the idea, just to, just to kind of reiterate your points there, the relativism versus a kind of universalism and the idea of whether or not society tends towards moral progress and improvement. And is he just talking about Britain and so on? What, are the, what's the, what is he assuming are the settings if you have such a kind of invisible hand in morals going? You know, if you're asserting a kind of invisible hand in morals, what setting are you assuming for that? Um, I, uh, just on the whole spectatorial thing in the organon, I just wanted to also point out that he says um, that um, men, he says that, that men view what happens in the world also in terms of intelligent beings, okay? And this, I guess he's kind of speak, thinking of um, the origins of religion, he says, this opinion or apprehension, I say, seems to be impressed by nature. Men are naturally led to ascribe to those mysterious beings, whatever they are, which happen in any country, to be the objects of religious fear, all their own sentiments and passions. They have no other, they can conceive no other to ascribe to them. Those unknown intelligences which they imagine but see not, must necessarily be formed with some sort of resemblance to those intelligences of which they have experience, namely people. Yes. And so they personify, you know, God, and, and then, you know, so many of these moral judgments are looked up with God, and then that's the enshrouding, right? Um, yeah, when I read that passage, I wrote in the, in the margin, uh, man creates God in his own image, right? Yeah. In, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, God creates man in God's image in this story, which is a primitive story because he's talking about gods, uh, plural. He's talking, no. I think, about sort of primitive cultures. He's saying, you know, when you inevitably create God in man's image, which I, it was just a, it's a beautiful sociology of religion argument, yeah. Yeah. utterly fascinating. And Smith doesn't say this other thing, but just again, I want to hit it. The idea that when we're infants, you know, people are saying more and more now that like the first five years are like highly determinative to people. And... And the idea that we are like deeply subconsciously internalizing sort of moral notions about right and wrong, and then we perhaps like work with those like in a subconscious way onward would be very congruent with Smith's organon, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so let me now just kind of give my, spit out my take on the impartial spectator. I'll be real interested to see a reaction to it. And this is, again, all before we start going page by page. So the impartial spectator... Um, as I see it, um, the impartial spectator in Smith actually ultimately is a almost universal being emanating a kind of universalist wisdom. That is, my impartial spectator is not different than your impartial spectator. My man in the breast is my man in the breast. And, you're, and it's different from your man in the breast, okay? And, and in each, respectively, our man in the breast is the supposed impartial spectator, the representative of the impartial spectator, and so on. But we have, um, you know, we have our own imperfect internal representatives of this impartial spectator. And what I see is going on in Smith, you know, he says, I, I divide myself, as it were, into two persons, right? This is when he's talking yeah. about being, being, he divides himself into the judge and the one judged of. Yeah. 
But the thing is, of course, that you know each of those persons can be divided <laughs> into yeah, two persons. That's right. You know, the judge that you just created can be divided into two persons. One being the one who judged the first judged of, and the second being the one who judges the judge of the first judged of. <laughs> right? I lost you there, Dan. I don't know what you, I got to try that again. Um, okay, so let's say. Let's say I um, turn my music up loud. Maybe it's disturbing my neighbor. I'm not sure. I divide myself into two persons. The person who turned up the volume. Who's enjoying it. Yeah. And now the, the judge who judges the me who just turned up the volume. And that judge then thinks about it. But then that judge can be divided into two persons. It's like, am I judging this right? And so you can also then create a judge of the judge. Okay. Which inevitably is coming from me because I mean from you because there's no one else in the in the in your head. It's it's right. your created judge of the judge. <laughs> yes, yes. And as things get um, routinized, okay, and your judgments, you can always sort of step back and judge again, right? And judge deeper. And you should talks, always be awake to the next level of judging. That's the onion, right? Yeah, and he talks about self-deception, that, that it's, That's right. know, it's, it's all well and good exactly. to say the impartial spectator has judged me to be just or the moral, internal, but, the, the but supposing. Maybe, I, maybe I'm fooling myself about the – maybe he's not so impartial because he's mine. That's got And I, maybe I cooked him up to be sympathetic to my self-interest. <laughs> exactly. And so – I think Smith has this totally dialectical view. It's a, it's a rather optimistic view about the process, which I think kind of suggests a, a continuing approach towards the absolute, the, the universal impartial spectator, um, because it's always calling, and, and there are dynamics in society by people's reactions and so on. I don't necessarily believe this today. That's, I think the world today is very different, uh, quite different than the world uh, he spoke of and if we want to go down that highly political uh, road, we can. But it's not just political; it's cultural too. Well, that's I mean, well, of course the political culture. It. It's the political culture. I mean, it's yeah, the regular culture about what's considered good behavior and what's considered Decent. over the top. What's considered gentlemanly, which is yes. totally different than what yes. was considered. I'm then. not so sure, though, that. Um, as far as upsetting invisible hand mechanisms and morals, I mean, I guess this is just my 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 organon is to blame it on government. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> right? it could be That's dead. my scientific organon. Yeah, it's the government's <laughs> fault. Um, and we'll I'm not so sure that. that I'm not so sure that the things you're referring. I'm not so sure I'm, I'm with you on that. But um, but politically, there's stuff going on because government in a politicized society is now such a big player in the culture in so many ways. That in in many respects, I'm concerned that Smith's optimistic view about sort of invisible hand mechanisms having the upper hand uh, uh, may not be true. But um, anyway, so the so so the impartial spectator, I think, in Smith is ultimately almost like a sun, a single sun around which we all orbit, and each of us as a being kind of creates c- continually creates these layered. Judges, or if you like, increasingly refined judge, right? Where you kind of you got the judge of the judge, and then they kind of sort things out and get reconciled, and then become sort of judge sub T this period. Or you know, you definitely need subscripts for Smith. That's the thing. It's definitely like you know a sequence. Um, and 
this idea of a universalist impartial spectator might, you know, enters the whole question of relativism. The thing is, you know, what this universal impartial spectator thinks is right and wrong, proper and improper and so on, is very much going to depend on context. Um, well, if the tradition is this and the context is this, the constraints are this, the scarcities are such, sure, maybe that is proper. Maybe infanticide, you know, he brings up infanticide, right? And, and he condemns it strongly. But he does have a sign in there, a line in there about, well, in these circumstances when someone's fleeing and they know that if they try to save their baby as well, neither of them are going to be saved, it's pardonable. So in that the universalism doesn't mean some kind of simple, you know, draconian, yeah, yeah, you know, one size fits all. It's kind of like, you know, this constantly, you know, developed and and, and, uh, explored thing. Well, we talked about it in the first podcast. It's loose, vague, and indeterminate. A lot of of what's fit, proper, and just has got to be looked at carefully, which, of course, opens the door to self-deception since it's not black and white. And that's, that's right. I think, the great challenge of moral moral behavior. Yeah. So that, I think, in a nutshell, is what, I'm, what I make of the impartial spectator. The impartial spectator, by the way, seems to be a he, whereas the author of nature and or nature is a she. I don't know if you noticed that. Well, there's very little sex-based differences in this book. There's, he, he lived, I assume, mainly in a world of men. So I think most of what he was talking about in society was male. There, there's a few references to female sensibilities, but a lot of it is male-oriented. Mm-hmm. Whether he thought that included women he, you know, in his day, that style of writing could have. But I would assume that a lot of his observations about the people he's talking about are men. The one thought I had about that, I don't have anything to add to that, Dan, except to mm-hmm. notice that okay. one thing that struck me in a couple of places was the intellectual hubris that Smith has in talking about how we feel. Um, you know, he's sitting. In, he's the ultimate armchair theorizer here. I assume he's not doing a lot of field research on how people feel about being judged or what motivated them in a moral crisis or a dilemma. He lays it down as if he's getting it from Sinai uh, that these are the laws of human nature, the laws of morality. You know, he, he's totally unhesitant in in saying what how people respond to different moral and, and emotional and economic situations. He never says, it seems to me or in my experience or I've noticed. It's all <laughs> men react. You know, it's just – he just – he's very self-confident. So hubris may be a little strong. But it, I would if, – if I'd been his buddy and I'd seen this draft and he asked me for feedback, I would have said, how do you know? But he is uh, – he keeps going forward. And it rings true for me. But most of the time. Uh, but I found it interesting that he, partly maybe because of his self-confidence or partly because of the, the time he was in, I mean, he's speculating tremendously about yeah. the, the brain as if he's in other people's brains. But he's only got one brain to refer to, and it's Adam Smith's of, of, uh, of 1759 through whenever. And it's fascinating to me that he did it with such uh, confidence. Yeah, I, I I have to agree with that. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. I guess maybe we we allow great authors a lot of leeway to just kind of like blurt it out there, make their case, make their illustration stark very often. He does have some very, you know, like when he says that the beggar sunning himself by the side of the road enjoys the tranquility that, that rich guys are are, 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 are struggling for. <laughs> it's like, oh, is that so? <laughs> yeah, right. How does he? Yeah, m- maybe not. Right. Let's ask a beggar. Yeah, let's, if he's let's, enjoying the tranquility. Yeah, that rich men are struggling for. It doesn't seem that way at the stoplights when they're when the cardboard sign. But may- maybe we're yeah. missing something. Um, but I guess the thing to do is to start. Yeah, start kind of like rolling through. This there's so much here, and and we are we are certainly short on time. So I think it's going to have to be more uh, sketchy. Um, so part three is of the foundation of our judgments concerning our own sentiments and, con- and conduct and the sense of duty. So we're, whereas the first two parts were about judging others, he's now der- turning it inward. And he's saying it's by the same kind of means. He's using that, those results. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's using those results to look inward now. And we are asking ourselves, you know, what a spectator would think of our conduct. First of all, we key off what people actually seem to be reacting to our conduct, and we talk, and he speaks of them as mirrors for us. Um, but um, uh, he, we also start judging of ourselves, and this is where he says, I divide myself, as it were, into two persons, the judge and the judged of. Um, and he shortly go, starts going into um, how we are implanted with a desire not only to be praised, but to be praised, praiseworthy. Yeah, to me, that summed up his whole view of, of, of the human enterprise, right? Yeah. We, we want to be loved, but we want to merit being right. loved, both because he hates deception, the idea that we might do something that people think is great, but also we want to do the right thing as his claim, which is really shocking. Yep. <laughs> He says, the love of praiseworthiness is by no means derived altogether from the love of praise. Right. So he's against someone who wants to reduce it all to praise. One of his proofs of this is that when you get praised for something you don't deserve praise right. for, you don't feel good about it. You know, you don't, it doesn't feel as, you know, you just, it doesn't feel as good as the praise you actually deserved. So he's got this introspective proof of that. And in fact, many people will say, hey, you know, even when no one else could have found out, hey, I didn't actually do this or I didn't do it on purpose or what have you. And he critiques women who wear makeup because he says, hey, it's fake. They're not really beautiful. They're just made up. Probably wouldn't be a big fan of plastic surgery. Uh, It's a strange view of makeup, but in his day, that was the equivalent, I guess, of that was the most a person could do to look more beautiful than they really were. That's right. He was saying that wearing makeup. He calls it vanity, which is clearly not a good thing. It it might be getting people admiration for their beauty they didn't deserve was apparently his take on that. Um, He says we do enjoy external praise. Um, One reason is that it provides confirmation of our own sense of praiseworthiness. There's a lot in this about the unknowability of the self or the incomplete knowledge of oneself. There's a lot about people don't know what they're capable of. They don't know if they've really done good. They don't know themselves. So in Smith, there's a lot of unknowability. It's not only the unknowability of the economy, like in the the nations, but there's actually an unknowability of the self. And there's even an unknowability really of the good, right? That goes back to the loose, vague, and indeterminate. Like, what is it that the self, who is, let's suppose the self is pursuing the good, 
you don't, we're not even sure what the good is, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of unknowability that, that is ineradicable in Smith. That's part of the mystery of Smith, in my view. Um, yeah, so he's got a few proofs, an extensive discussion of our um, value for praiseworthiness and, and our desire to not be blameworthy. Um, let's see, I've got something underlined here. Uh, he applauds and admires himself by sympathies which do not... Oh, this is when the world accuses us, say, of something which we didn't actually do wrong, but they think we did wrong, and we can't maybe convince them. Um, and in cases such as this, we get considerable... Com we compensate ourselves with considerable comfort by resorting to the internal spark, the spectator. Uh, he says, the man so accused applauds and admires himself by sympathies which do not indeed actually take place, but which the ignorance of the public alone hinders from taking place. But those sympathies do happen, as it were, with his imaginary um, spectator. He's got that incredible passage where he says, uh, a person will sacrifice his life in battle. I think it's talking about battle. And he's imagining the applause he's going to get after his death. That's right. That's Even though he's not going to hear it, he's going to enjoy it now. Exactly. It's an incredible another, another proof that it's not praise. The guy won't be alive to get right. the praise. Yeah. Um, he, also, he also uses the expression, if the world was ever made to understand properly the real circumstances of our behavior. Again, the knowledge problem in Smith, that um, we can't know just everyone's moral worth, what everyone's absolutely morally do. And they can't know ours. And they can't know so ours. So our circumstances could be such that we're actually doing an extraordinary thing. That's right. Uh, but since they can't know us perfectly, we have to live with that and com find comfort in the fact that we know we did the right thing. That's right. We have to create. We, we have to create a judge who does know. The only judge who can know. Which can be God, and he occasionally is going to invoke that as, uh, as, as the one who solves the knowledge problem to some extent, right? Because God knows That's right. in his world, knows our motives, knows our, our actions in a way that our friends and spectators can't. The impartial spectator is God is an obvious, you know, translation. But it's not most of the time. Most of the time— In he, Smith. In Smith, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's not that he insists on that, um, but— you know, anyone who wanted to see it that way could easily and systematically, I think, see it that way. Um, okay, man falsely accused of crime is humbled that anyone should think so mean of his character that he'd be capable of it. And that's one of the reasons you can't kind of fully compensate internally for what's happening to you externally. And then Smith goes on to say that it's, this is actually the wisdom of nature because we want to make people vigilant not to do things wrong because if they could fully com you know you know if they could sort of fully compensate themselves they wouldn't take all that extra care to make sure that uh nothing bad happens that that they would get the external blame for um and, he, you know all these things are examples to me of 19th century british literature you know the person who's harboring a terrible secret of a mis or not just British literature, world literature. It's you know, the person who harbors the secret act that they did that no one knows about, whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. That tension is what creates a lot of the world's art. Because uh, right. it's unbearable for us. We want yeah. we want the world to know about the good deed or the bad deed. We want it to be rewarded or punished in its full uh, yeah. full measure. And Smith talks a lot about that frustration 
that we have and the urge we have to, to, to compensate and punish based on the reality of the motives especially and, yeah. and the acts and how it's imperfect. It's not going to be that way yeah. and that, that bugs us. And so you think about the world's, you know, the great novels uh, and, and operas. What? Crime, I'm thinking of Crime and Punisher. I'm thinking of a lot of Dickens. <laughs> I mm-hmm. wonder how much Smith, if any, Dickens read. But you know, a lot of his characters go through this anguish. You know, Sidney yeah. Carton uh, in uh, – Yeah, I mean we've got this theme in here that over time – you come more and more to the view of the impartial spectator, like the man who loses his leg. At first, he's, you know, really upset. And, you know, even after the pain passes, he's maybe, you know, complaining a lot and feels it's unfair and, you know, whining a lot about it. But eventually, he kind of comes to the view that an impartial spectator is, is, yeah, it's a shame, but, you know, life goes on. There's no point in whining. Get on with life and just... You know, don't expect other people to treat it special or whatever. And over time, you know, the guy gets back to normal, as it were. Just like we were saying before about the lottery winner goes back to normal and the quadriplegic tends to go back. So they, um, so there's this tendency to um, towards an impartial spectator. So if Raskolnikov, right, kills the woman and wants to kind of progress towards any kind of, um, you know, moral advance he's got he's at least in Dostoevsky I suppose and in Smith he's got to kind of come to grips with the fact that this horrible thing he's done that the world is going to judge him the world has judged him and he just they just don't know about it <laughs> uh, right that he's got to internalize I mean it's such a maybe the universe has judged yeah, him or god but it, yeah, it's such god. a remarkable I mean I didn't think enough about the loss of the leg I, the idea that the that this poor person who's lost his leg is going to be ultimately reconcile by putting himself in the shoes of the sympathetic but not too sympathetic impartial spectator who can't feel his loss ever, right? A, a person with with both legs can't really know what it's like to have lost a leg, can sympathize, but that person's got his own life, and that, that the person who has lost the leg is going to come to cope with it by putting himself in the shoes of the less than perfectly sympathetic spectator who's only impartial. Is really a tremendously provocative idea. I mean, it's really deep. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. All this discussion reminds me, though, of the Woody Allen film *Crimes and Misdemeanors*, where uh, Martin Landau has, you know, his mistress iced by Jerry Orbach, and um, at the end of the movie, what happens? Is that he's perfectly content and he goes on living and nothing happens. That's Woody Allen's moral universe. It's That's sort right. of devoid of justice. I've, I've, it's a theme that runs through many of his his, his quote serious movies. It's in uh, Match Points got a similar okay. conclusion. I don't of, recall exactly how that wound up, but yeah, it does. Trust yeah, me. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. Cl- I mean, empirically, it's not clear that. There aren't people like the character in Martin uh, of Martin Lando in the movie, or is or, or do you dispute that? I don't know. It's a deep question. I yeah. I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's answered easily outside of context, context circumstances, and and yeah. constraints. The the things you talked about earlier. I think the potential for self deception by our, the Raskolnikovs of the world is probably immense. By the Woody Allens of the world. Yeah, that that you know that that you can go on with your life and. Um, you know, I think a lot about whether you know someone like O.J. Simpson, who is the some of the world has decided he's a murderer, some of the world's decided he's not. 
but I wonder what he thinks about himself if he actually did do the crime. I, I could imagine – I mean the power for self-deception is so large. I can imagine he he's probably decided he wasn't – even if he was guilty, he's innocent. You know, we, uh, our ability – because we do want to go on with our life. Uh, so I'm not sure everybody yeah. has the torment of Raskolnikov. Uh, right. Or the ease of Martin Landau. I don't think it's it's obviously not as simple as that. It's not like oh, which one is it? I think different people have different regret, remorse, yeah. and ability to put it behind them, or an ability to force themselves to come to grips with it. And I think it's probably different for for different people. Smith certainly affirms the sort of remorse view. Right? Is Smith yeah, very sure. different than the Woody Allen movie? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that may be his time. Yeah, and it could also be it could also be his agenda, as it were. I mean, class. Yeah. (laughs) What's that? Or his class? It's not just his time. It's you know he comes from a certain. Yeah. He's in a certain circle of people that that may have very much been true of. I think he might be exhorting, though. I like that idea. Uh, It's it's a worthy thing for society to aspire to. Exactly. I think there's a lot of I mean so much of that in Smith. Um, Anyhow. he notes that um, we are uh, more anxious to know about praise or blame when we are uncertain of our own propriety because we're more eager to get that feedback. Again, highlighting that uh, 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 we don't even know ourselves necessarily that well, um, even though we're sort of witnesses to our action. Um, He's got the thing about the poets versus the mathematicians, which I know you like, Russ. You mentioned yeah, it in the hallway. So, it's so good. Uh, where, where mathematicians know darn well, you know, the merit of their work and the merit of each other's work. Um, I, I mean, this is the way Smith tells it. I'm not sure if you visit the math department, it'll look this way. But uh, the, the, the way Smith tells it is they know so darn well the merit of their own work of their colleagues' work and in relation to each other, that there's very little acrimony between them. They get along fine as a bunch of people who sort of pursue their, you know, inquiries, getting the recognition they pretty much all feel and see each other deserves. Poets, on the other hand, <laughs> loose, vague, and indeterminate. Totally Who's loose, a good vague, poet? exactly. Totally loose, vague, and indeterminate. And so they all have very different feelings about the um, standing and respect they they each distinction that they each deserve, and they all they create cabals, clicks, factions, exactly. Which all which Smith has a great job of of sort of ridiculing and, and making fun of. Interestingly, he he speaks of natural philosophers that would be like physics and stuff, like the mathematicians. He doesn't say anything about moral philosophers here. Yeah, or political economists. I, I, it kind of goes back to our previous podcast before the book club about groupthink. In economics, uh, who's a good economist is loose, vague, and indeterminate. So, to some extent, our professions relied on mathematical ability as a measure uh, of. That's of, exactly. Of that's a good point. Who, that's exactly of, right. Of who's the best economist, and uh, those of us who are not great mathematicians or who have a different value system, whether we're self-deceiving or not, are using a different metric. But as a result, it's loose, vague, and indeterminate, and so you get factions in economics about who's exactly who's good right. and who isn't. And I, two thoughts, though. One, I, I suspect there's a mathematician listening to this, and I'd ask him to let, let us know whether we're, whether Smith's right about mathematics. But I was struck about the uh, disputes between um, Newton and Leibniz over the founding of, of calculus, the discovery of calculus, uh, they may all agree as to what is great mathematics, that Leibniz was a great mathematician and Newton was, but there certainly was a tremendous amount of backstabbing and, and, oh, really? and uh, aggressive 
claims on who found it first, uh, I think by Newton, um, because he wanted that acclaim. So I don't think he was as serene as Smith. And Smith's yeah. he's sitting back in his chair. He knows he's a great mathematician. Everybody knows he's a great mathematician. Right. And so, eh, there's no problems. Life is good. But I, Newton, I don't think... I don't think he acted that way, it turns out. But. Yeah, that could be an example of what you were saying. He doesn't really know about those. those. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, he may didn't hang out with it. But he clearly had, I think, some mathematic, mathematician friends. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's right. And he may have been going off that. He did. Yeah. He certainly did. And, and in talking about the poets, he totally names names yeah. with the cabals and so on. <laughs> um, I, I kept thinking about the New York uh, Times book review section where, you know, people are, are – patting the backs of their buddies in the reviews of their poetry or fiction mm. and slicing up their, their enemies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, Smith speaks of the all-wise author of nature has in this manner taught man to respect the sentiments and judgments of his brethren, to be more or less pleased when they approve of his conduct and to be more or less hurt when they disapprove of it. He has made man, if I may say so, the immediate judge of mankind, and has, in this respect, as in many others, created him after his own image. Which suggests, by the way, then, that the author of nature is male. Yeah. So that contradicts the uh, what, what I thought I had figured out, which was that that was always female. Anyway, and the author of nature appointed him, man, his vicegerent, or vice, vice, how do you say it? Vicegerent. Vicegerent, which is some kind of deputy upon earth to superintend the behavior of his brethren. And so this notion of a sort of bottom, you know, bottom, down at the bottom, a diffuse, decentralized policing, governing of each other's, we watch each other as equals, Right, coming back to your point, yeah, um, from the earlier di- podcast, yeah, uh, it, it is is very strong here, and it's very strong elsewhere in these pa- in these pages. Um, uh, that 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 we have been sort of deputized to um, police each other, yeah. essentially morally. It's a I, I wrote in the margins that there's a divine plan of self regulation that because we desire the respect of others, we're motivated to to behave well. And it implies, of course, that we should judge others to motivate them in, in turn. Yep. Um, but I think here he says that sometimes uh, our peers sort of mistake our situation. Inevitably. And uh, again, we've kind of touched on this already, but an appeal lies from his sentence to a much higher tribunal, to the tribunal of their own conscien- consciences. This is person sort of falsely accused to that of the supposed impartial and well-informed spectator, to that of the man within the breast, the great judge and arbiter of their conduct. So that's, this is, I think, really the first time that he fully kind of says, you've got this man in your breast, this man in your breast is a supposed impartial and well-informed spectator. It's not necessarily really impartial or well-informed. Um... And he's going to concede that later. Yep. And, and this, it's the man in the breast, apparently, who is the great judge and arbiter of one's conduct. So we're not directly judged. We're never directly judged by, you know, God, as it were, by the impartial spectator, by the absolute um, source or emanator of all of this. It's always just the one that's biased, that we've kind of created outward from our being towards that. 
Okay, so we're all kind of trying to go towards this great sun is kind of how I see it. Like one great sun emanating a universalist wisdom, but each of us is this this onion type of thing, more of a spiral. Some people objected about the onion not being a spiral. I don't know if you saw that on the <laughs> I comments. I did see it, yeah. Hey, an onion it's doesn't, okay. they don't serve onion spirals at restaurants. Um, that's a good point. Um, but anyway, so the external tri- tribunal that is of real people is founded upon the desire for actual praise, that is pra- praise among actual people. The internal tribunal is founded upon the desire for praiseworthiness. Yeah. That's praise from internal judges. Um, he says, man is sometimes astonished and confounded by uh, the external vehemence and clamor of those without. Um, and this sometimes stupefies us and puts us in check even when we thought we were real justified. I think this is a very interesting thing. I think it, it, Smith here, he's got this kind of protagonist who's wrongly judged. He doesn't consider the possibility that his protagonist is completely in error here. I guess he does later in the self-deception. Yeah. Um, but he, he does he doesn't he doesn't hear. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? No, just that I, I found it utterly fascinating and beautifully beautifully written the way he lays that out okay. uh, in chapter two of part three. It's mm-hmm. um, it really describes uh, again the human enterprise of we go through life. Uh, we want people to respect us. And we want to respect ourselves and that those two things interact with each other, the man within and the man without, um, the way we view mm-hmm. ourselves, the way we view the way others view us. And um, once you start thinking about that, as I said in the introductory comments we had, uh, it starts to ripple through a lot of your conduct and, and thoughts about what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's I very thought-provoking. Think thinking about virtues – is actually virtuous. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I find I I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm actually a better person. I hope it sticks. Yeah, no, there's no. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I found that, you know, it's like I, instead I, of Prozac. Yeah, it's a little healthier. Um, uh, although it's time consuming reading Smith. I, you yeah. know, it, I, this is not a book you can press on your friends and say you've got to read this book because that f- those first two parts are a little slow and most of our friends may not get through it. But this part is um, – it's good reading. He says then that you know, this, all this stuff has been associated with God and religion and that religion has very much been an inculcator of these things. And he um, gives an example of one uh, bishop or cleric. I forget what, what he was. Um, yeah, that's great. And that it's um, – It's a little hard passage to follow, but it's very interesting. Yeah, and that it's a little bit taking things too far – and that religion often does this, established religion often does this, and then people react against these, these generalizations, these sort of, you know, over-sentimentalizing, this kind of preachiness, and then they reject religion, and it, but, but, he, but he, he warns against that, or he warns against rejecting whatever the, you know, the, the spiritual uh, substances here. He says, we can wonder that so strange an application he says, of... can we wonder? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Can we wonder that so strange an application... That's the, this cleric's strange application. Can we wonder that so strange an application of this most respectable doctrine should sometimes have exposed it 
to contempt and derision with those at least who had themselves perhaps no great taste or turn for the devout and contemplative virtues. So it's like, you know, people too too often throw the baby out with the bathwater when they don't like the sort of religious bathwater, as it were. Um, So moving on to chapter three of the influence and authority of conscience, um, the influence and authority of this principle is upon all occasions very great, and it is only by consulting this judge within that we can ever see what relates to ourselves and it, in, in its proper shape and dimensions, or that we can ever make any proper comparison between our own interests and those of others. Um, okay, he's got this analogy with uh, vision and depth yeah, perception. Really what creative. seems like when he looks out his window, some things that are really very large just seem very small and insignificant, and he seems so large, things around him seem so large, and this is the kind of, just as we learn depth perception, we learn sort of moral depth perception that things that seem so large to us aren't really large. Um, and this leads into the um, earthquake in China. Yeah. Um, uh, Russ, do you want to? Yeah, why don't pick I up go on that? At um, this is a very famous example. You know, there. I, I was uh, one of the interesting things about going back and reading the book in its entirety as someone who only had dipped into it or has heard about it mostly from other people. This is one of the famous examples that you will hear about from from the theory of moral sentiments. And I have to say, every time I'd heard of it, uh, it turns out I would heard about it incorrectly from what Smith actually intended. So I'm going to read the passage for those following along at home. And uh, it's a long passage. It's a long passage, but I'll try to read it in as lively as way as I can. And um, it's extremely um, uh, Smith's conclusion is very different than than what I had expected, especially uh, if you're only a reader of the Wealth of Nations. So here's what he says: <clears throat> Let us suppose that the great empire of China, with all its myriads of inhabitants, was suddenly swallowed up by an earthquake. And let us consider how a man of humanity in Europe who had no sort of connection with that part of the world, would be affected upon receiving intelligence of this dreadful calamity. He would, I imagine, first of all, express very strongly his sorrow for the misfortune of that unhappy people. He would make many melancholy reflections upon the precariousness of human life and the vanity of all the labors of man, which could thus be annihilated in a moment. He would, too, perhaps, if he was a man of speculation— and there are too many reasonings concerning the effects which this disaster might produce upon the commerce of Europe and the trade and business of the world in general. And when all this fine philosophy was over, when all these humane sentiments had been once fairly expressed, he would pursue his business or his pleasure, take his repose or his diversion with the same ease and tranquility as if no such accident had happened. The most frivolous disaster which could befall himself would occasion a more real disturbance. If he was to lose his little finger tomorrow, he would not sleep tonight. But provided he never saw them, he would snore with the most profound security over the ruin of a hundred million of his brethren. And the destruction of that immense multitude seems plainly an object less interesting to him than this paltry misfortune of his own. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. And at that point, you know, it basically says, look, here's the reality of life. Uh, things that happen to other people don't bother us as much as things that happen to us. We're fundamentally selfish. Um, of course, losing a finger is quite a, a macabre and, and dark example. It's, a, it's an 18th century example. It's not something most of us – I don't know many people have lost a finger. Uh, 
so what he's simply saying is that, you know, hey, we're self-centered. And that's very consistent, I think, with the parody of Smith that's in popular culture. Smith's all about selfishness, greed, etc. And all that fine talk is just kind of it's empty. cheap talk. Right, exactly. Caring about these people. And all, yeah. right. And he, the way he worded it, he clearly is saying it, it's not as heartfelt as, as it might otherwise. Before you go on, though, yeah. one thing I want to remark about that yeah. first, about half of the paragraph – is how he speaks of the hundred millions of his brethren. Yeah, nice. I think that's extremely significant. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that, I, I would imagine that that struck, you know, English readers in the 18th century, the Chinese are my brethren. Oh, I guess in a way they are. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that was something. Yeah, and and he chose China because in the 18th century and even today, it's an alien place. It's foreign to us. It's It's far away physically and its world is not our world. Um, okay, so he then says, so he's invoked this contrast between how a person feels about losing his finger versus 100 million people dying. He continues, to prevent, therefore, this paltry misfortune to himself, would a man of humanity be willing to sacrifice the lives of 100 million of his brethren, provided he had never seen them? Human nature startles with horror at the thought. And the world, in its greatest depravity and corruption, never produced such a villain as could be capable of entertaining it. But what makes this difference? And here Smith's asking, so how could it be that you sleep soundly knowing that tomorrow 100 million people are going to die, but you can't sleep if you're going to lose your little finger tomorrow, and yet you would not kill 100 million people to save your finger? It's a, there's a certain contradiction there. And, and his answer well, let me re- reread the sentence. But what makes this difference when our passive feelings are almost always so sordid and so selfish? How come it that our active principles should often be so generous and so noble when we are always so much more deeply affected by whatever concerns ourselves than by, what, than by whatever concerns other men? What is it which prompts the generous upon all occasions and the mean upon many? To sacrifice their own interests to the greater interests of others. It is not the soft power of humanity. It is not that feeble spark of benevolence which nature has lighted up in the human heart that is thus capable of counteracting the strongest impulses of self-love. It is a stronger power, a more forcible motive which exerts itself upon such occasions. It is reason, principle, conscience, the inhabitant of the breast, the man within, the great judge and arbiter of our conduct. It is he who, whenever we are about to act so as to affect the happiness of others, calls to us with a voice capable of astonishing the most presumptuous of our passions that we are but one of the multitude, in no respect better than any other in it, and that when we prefer ourselves so shamefully and so blindly to others, we become the proper, uh, proper objects of resentment, abhorrence, and execration. It is from him only that we learn the real littleness of ourselves and of whatever relates to ourselves. And the natural misrepresentations of self-love can be corrected only by the eye of this impartial spectator. It is he who shows us the propriety of generosity and the deformity of injustice, the propriety of resigning the greatest interests of our own for the yet greater interests of others, and the deformity of doing the smallest injury to another in order to obtain the greatest benefit to ourselves. And here he's going to conclude this paragraph with which, which I think is an I mean it's eloquent, it's beautiful, it's it's an incredible 
passage. But here he's going to conclude with an incredible parallel to a famous passage in The Wealth of Nations, that it's not from the benevolence of the butcher and and our other tradespeople we deal with that that we get our our bread, but rather from their own self-interest. And he sort of turns it on his head here. He says, it is not the love of our neighbor. It is not the love of mankind, which upon many occasions prompts us to the practice of those divine virtues. It is a stronger love more powerful affection, which generally takes place upon such occasions, the love of what is honorable and noble, of the grandeur and dignity and superiority of our own characters. It's absolutely magnificent, right? He's saying that what what motivates us to do good deeds and to put ourselves to the side and to forego the opportunity to hurt other people and advance our own self-interest, what stops that isn't that we care so much about other people, that we're truly altruistic. It's that it's a weird form of self-interest. It's we would not respect ourselves. There's something universal, as you said before. There's something um, absolute about good, the good and the just and the right that comes from within us that that, that motivates us to do the right thing. It, it's an extraordinary uh, – I love – it's not the feeble spark of benevolence. We have some benevolence, but it's feeble. It's not enough most mm-hmm. of the time to get us to stop from pursuing our self-interest if it means harming others. But rather, it's – we have this deep moral code within us that's produced by the feeling of, of, of the impartial spectator, the man within created by – by those 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 judgments of others. Yeah, there's a number of things in here I wanted to remark on, and I guess I'll start. Go ahead. I've been I'll start there. Editorializing um, along. Um, I mean, one way to take this is to kind of say that um, benevolence, beneficence, um, virtue resides in. What one makes their self-interest. Yeah, so it's said. so it's not you know whether someone acts in their self-interest or not in their self-interest. It's what does one make into their self-interest. We can create our own utility functions to put it into modern economic language, right? We can decide what we get our pleasure from. We can get our pleasure from doing the right thing. Right, and again, this creates spirals. I mean, it's 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 we're now sort of judging what one. Has created, uh, uh, has has made their self-interest in a sense, made their routines, their character, their identity, and even that can become routine, right? And too confined when it is then not awakened, awake to the next step. You know, someone is he seems selfish. He should care more about his family. So then he learns to care more about his family. He gets into a groove of caring about his family. It's like, all that guy cares about is his family. He should care about the community. Look, when he makes a trade-off between the community and his family, he just cares about his family. It's like, oh, it's like, you know what I mean? You can always kind of go, and that's that universal going wider and wider. Um, And in a sense, Smith is challenging us to look for our own distinction inside ourselves in this wisdom of being wider and wider. And then we take up secret pleasure in, as he says in the very last line, what is honorable and noble of the grandeur and dignity and superiority of our own characters. So he's got a, he's got a love of distinction. He's not trying to, he's trying to turn that towards wisdom. You know what I mean? He's trying to, he's, or, or um, maybe you're saying, maybe you'd say that just he's noticing that, 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 that virtue and morality turns uses that for wisdom. 
and for good. But he's not trying to, he's trying, he's reconciling the love of distinction and the pursuit of wisdom and virtue Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way, in a kind of non-sorted way where if it ever got sorted, you wouldn't have distinguished yourself as well as you otherwise would have. Um, because that sordidness would be part of the judgment of just how superior you are. Does that make sense? Are you saying sorted S-O-R-T-E-D or sorted S-O-R-D-I-D? D-I-D. Okay, say it again. Like this love of distinction gets channeled in a way where any sordidness that would come out of it is... is, um, self-repressing in a way because such sordidness is precisely what would keep you from feeling more superior Mm -hmm. in this way so he's turning he's in a sense he's like turning the pursuit of wisdom into the kind of distinction contest that he's urging us to play does that make sense i'm just puzzled why i use the word wisdom rather than than goodness um, or well, it's, it's the same difference, you know, whatever, yeah. Well, you know, sure, wisdom, goodness, that's fine. Platonic justice, to go back okay. to the original justices, yeah. that's the encompassing justice. Um, now, one thing that's curious about that um, is that he's talking about how, in some sense, we're moved to the, do this because we want this sense of grandeur, dignity, and superiority, and yet the impartial spectator is calling to us that we are but one of the multitude in no respect better than any other in it. <laughs> so how do you square finding superiority and answering the call of someone who insists that you're one of the multitude, not superior to anyone else in it? And that's um, not something I'm going to attempt to well, offer a resolution to. Um, I wrote somewhere else in here not about a different passage, but I won't pull it out, but... There's a um, there's a Jewish expression, an exhortation that um, a person should have in his pocket a piece of paper that says, "From dust I was created, and to dust I shall return. I'm nothing. I'm I'm a speck in the universe of, of God." And in the other pocket should be a piece of paper that says, "The universe was created for me. I have." expectations of what I'm to achieve and everything turns on that. My correct behavior, my dignity, my right. my actions. And how can you you can't reconcile those. And one it says you're nothing and the other it says you're just a lower little lower than the angels. Uh, and I think the right answer is you gotta have both. If you just have one, if you just pursue distinction, you're a, you're gonna be a monster. If you're so humble that you think you're you're a nothing and you're a nobody, you'll you may as well kill yourself. <laughs> and so a human being has to go through life with that tension. And I think Smith's saying something similar. You've got to have pride, but if you but not too much pride because you really are no better than anyone else. So strive to be, but remember that you're just you're a human being and you're a brethren. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of like a, a happy middle. Don't go. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a happy middle. Uh, okay. I, again, no, it's not. It's not a happy middle in that it's you're not going to take the mean. You've got to live with both of those at the same time. There's this inherent schizophrenia. each at the right moment. No, not necessarily. Invo- invoking them both sort of simultaneously. Okay. It, it's like saying. Um, I don't know. 
Can I, let me just, I don't want to leave this, but I want to just maybe enlarge, because in Smith, this is something I've been meaning to work in, is that in Smith, there is this curious um, tension, duality, I'm not quite sure what the word is, where in some respects, um, well, he speaks of the mob of humankind. (laughs) He speaks of the present depraved state of mankind. He speaks of so weak and imperfect a creature as man. Um, he speaks of men as coarse clay out of which, yeah. you know, and, and, it, and so in one way you get this feeling that, um, he doesn't really think much of the average person. And, and, in, and, and with that, he also does sometimes speak about the rareness of wisdom and the exceptionalness and, uh, a kind of aristocracy of judgment. So you've got in one way, a very kind of distinction-type sense within Smith. But on the other hand, you've got very much this kind of any stranger can pull you towards universal wisdom. Any stranger can change your perspective. Everyone's got the same basic moral faculties, same kind of moral problems. No one's really better than each other. Just like the porter and the philosopher in The Wealth of Nations, they really just happen to have had different circumstances that created different results. And so on the one hand, you get a very, um, you know, sort of egalitarian, everyone's of equal worth kind of view. And on the other hand, you get, a sense of superiority. So most people are scum. Is is what is that? There's the darker view, and and that's reality. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't think but, he would ever put it that way. But well, coarse clay and weak and base. Well, what do you okay. got? <laughs> well, scum it sounds Nowadays, a bit strong. Has a connotation of more, yeah, no, sort of like bad and. But yeah, he, yeah, he does say depraved. Yeah, yeah he does say so weak. It. <laughs> it's a present depraved state of mankind. Uh, I think the again, I think your earlier point is very relevant here. One way to view that seeming contradiction or duality is uh, its exhortation. Look, we're human beings. Uh, the man within often lies to the <laughs> to, to us and says we're doing the right thing. Uh, our conscience often fools us into. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of conversations on. You can talk about about the philosophy of pragmatism and how and the flaws of reason and rationality and the in, in their conversations with Taleb and and elsewhere that. It's very hard to do the right thing, and I think Smith would admit it because we're coarse clay and we're weak and depraved and we're fallible, and he talks about self-deception, but we can rise above that, right? And he's exhorting us. This is what goodness is. This is what we strive – should strive for, whether we all strive for it. No, that would be a lie. Maybe even most people don't strive for it because we're all human. But I think he's outlining what the world can be, and part of it what is is some of his world was – was like that as well. Uh, but I think there's a beautiful simultaneous embracing of those. That's it's a very rich yeah. view of, of what life's about. I don't have a resolution. I'm still like working on that. But we're all that. We're all that. In, we, we, in fact, but, but we're, no, we're that I, in I would like to somehow kind of work out the superiority in the egalitarianism. It's kind of so that I'd like to somehow reconcile them. But anyhow, okay. I don't Let's have a, re- a resolution to offer. So I, I view it as um, a very rich picture of humanity. That yeah, well, at any certainly. one moment, absolutely. But yeah, at any one moment, we can rise above our coarse clay, and other times we sink into it, and we are who we are. Yeah. Uh, it's a very. Um, I find it very moving. Actually. I actually consider liberalism, in some sense, to be this whole philosophy. See, that's my religion. 
you know, you you have your religion, and my, my religion essentially is liberalism. I don't believe in liberalism as a religion in this in the sense of an or, or a creator, of obviously, or of an afterlife and all that. I'm quite a naturalist on all those matters. And where did all this come from? I have no idea. I don't even know what that means, really, to ask, to tell you the truth. But in terms of the surrogate nature, the kind of secular, it's like liberalism is like my religion. And in some ways, I think, I, I kind of tend to read Smith, actually, as, you know, building. He's kind of the Jesus of... <laughs> Of uh, <laughs> liberalism, I guess, or Moses in my case, or Moses uh, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those of you listening to this, maybe uh, to Dan for the first time, when Dan says liberalism, he means it in the cl- in the classical sense, uh, the uh, the enterprise of liberty. Yeah. There's one other point in this paragraph that uh, you know he says when our passive feelings are almost always so sordid and so selfish, how comes it that our active principles should often be so generous and so noble? Again, a big theme for me of this book is that it can be read as having a deep, rich, underlying political message about degovernmentalizing, depoliticizing society. You know, He's saying that it's in our active faculties that we are best. That suggests that schooling and welfare and jobs and taking care of your life, your retirement, your family, and everything else should be more an active matter of your own choice as opposed to something that basically has sort of been decided for you from above, either by being taxed, regulated, put into a government school, and so on and so forth, where everything becomes much more passive for you. In a, in a more governmentalized, more politicized society. That's only, one, that's only one aspect of, I think, those themes. But this notion that we are more virtuous the more active we are and the more active we need to be, um, I, I think has that, I, I kind of take in a, in a somewhat libertarian way, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, very um, interesting. He goes on um, after that and... Um, he talks about um, two two sets of philosophers um, who um, have kind of talked about this this moral duty, a sense of duty. Um, and the first are the moralists, the whining and melancholy moralists. <laughs> this is spectacular indictment <laughs> okay. of do-goodism. Do-goodism. Yeah. Um, and these are the types who say, you know, love your neighbor as much as yourself, right? And they seem altogether absurd and unreasonable. Uh, they, they bear a certain affective and, and sentimental sadness for things when they happen like an earthquake in China. It's not really all to any good purpose. Um, and Smith says that um, we, don't really, we don't really need to de- spend, expend a lot of emotional energy on those whom we can neither serve nor hurt. He's very much a pragmatist and he's at that point, yeah. and he's also... Uh, He's not big on being guilty about being prosperous or happy or successful or even lucky. Stuff uh, you don't really – Because yeah. there's nothing in his mind, whether in our world it's different, but in his mind, uh, since you can't redress these uh, Im- imbalances or in- in even injustices, you should just be serene and go on. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very um, – and he tends to tends, modern view tends to put these whining and melancholy moralists to to the side pretty quickly. 
uh, again, Smith resorts to the view that we should um, really only care about those whom we can serve or hurt. But, you know, I do think that there's something to be said for these whining and melancholy moralists because what we, whom we can and can't serve and hurt, right, is not something we necessarily always have a great sense of. And to some extent, they might be alerting us, right, uh, informing us that, you know, actually you could give to this charity, right? right? Or you could, you know, buy this kind of meat so, such that cows aren't raised in such a terrible way. You know, kind of a Peter Singer. I mean, he's kind of a whining and melancholy moralist, right? Yeah. But you, in some ways, I respect the guy because he's raising these issues that maybe we can be more in con- have greater con- connection to these people we treat as like well I don't I don't devote any you know moral energy on that because it's not I'm not connected to it it's of no purpose well he's saying well it could be of a purpose you yeah. could get involved no I think our disputes in general if we stick to the stay away from the animal rights issue which I think is is uh, is clear that we're hurting cows when we eat them. Uh, but there's I, different ways they can be correct, raised and all that. Correct. So, I, no, I'm agreeing with you there. I think the more interesting case is, say, a trade issue where the – what are they called? Whining and – Whining and melancholy moralists. The whining and melancholy moralists are telling us we shouldn't buy you know, sneakers made by poor people yeah, well, in Asia. Yeah, they just get it wrong. Right. Well, that's my point is that, yeah. is that because of the unknowability – you're saying that because of the unknowability – the whining moralists might be doing us a favor. They might be alerting us to the possibility yeah. that, that we have our actions might affect others. I'm pointing out that the unknowability often means that what you think is hurting them might be better than than the alternative. And to pretend that yeah, there's, there's a perfect that world out there That's right. is a mistake. But I gather that Peter Singer in his latest book, I saw the blogging heads with Peter Singer and Tyler Cowen. And um, you know he's saying give to charity. He's saying you can give more to charity, and you would help people a lot in Africa or wherever. And you know Smith says it only really matters for whom we can serve or hurt. Well, who can we serve or hurt? Well, that's the question, right? And that yeah, that's the question that's that's being raised. So those are the ones who tell us to love our neighbor as much as ourselves. And then there are the other set of philosophers who he also thinks so, seems to think overdo it, who say love yourself only as much as your neighbor. And that's the Stoics. And basically he seems to like pretty much dig the Stoics. Dig meaning like? Yeah, dig meaning yeah. like. Well, he invoked that argument earlier in part two, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That, that there's something that's virtuous right. about tempering yourself love. That's right. That's right. He does think that it can be overdone. He he speaks, for example, about the affection between parent and child. By the way, he has an evolutionary remark here about the continuous and propagation of the species depending altogether upon the affection of the parent to the child, but not the child to the parent. And that's he notices that while he points out the asymmetry, yeah. which is an evolutionary moment. There's another one. Uh, yeah, it's um, a great passage because he points out, as many have noticed, that in the Ten Commandments it says – you should honor your parents. He says then, but he says it doesn't tell you to love your your children. And the standard answer would be because you don't have to tell command That's people right. to that, but you do have to command them to honor That's your right. parents. That's right. But he neglects the fact that it doesn't say to love your parents. Uh-huh. Is it the 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 God of uh, of um, can you command love? love yeah, because you can't command love, but honor is a standard you can at least aspire to. Um, I'll try to skip over this, but basically he says that the Stoics can overdo it. Like he thinks that. Um, that that uh, like if a Stoic son died, right? The Stoic may not show much 
emotion of grief whatever and he and 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 I think Smith is saying that that's that's actually a little bit off-putting yeah like for somebody to seem so insensible to things like that that it might even be improper yeah. um to be so stoical in some ways however although he praises stoicism with a small yes. s Throughout, you know, there's an unbelievable passage. When it where comes to like not losing your son, but losing your arm, losing your leg from a cannonball and war, you're yeah. supposed to then quietly tell, you That's know, right. keep commanding the officers and show no no emotion. That's right. In private misfortunes, where it's not kind of when it's more just strictly private and selfish, then he's like all for stoicism, basically. Yeah. Um. He talks about. Um, he talks here a little bit about um, how we um, sense another viewpoint as soon as we're in the company of other people. Um, he says, this effect is produced instantaneously and, as it were, mechanically. Again, you know, this notion that I, I think that Smith sees the spectatorial thing as very instinctual and it's subconscious. Built, it's built into the fabric of the universe for him. There's no doubt about it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not really sure what the thread here is in my notes, but I'm just going to go on. Um, the man of, uh, let's see, impartial spectator. Okay, so he says that um, we learn to, to uh, judge and review not only our outward conduct, but even our inward sentiments, okay, which would include our moral sentiments. So again, that's one of these moments which I see as one of these kind of dialectical moments, if you will, where it's kind of like the next step. You know, the dividing of the dividing, the next layer. Because if you're going to judge your sentiments, including your moral sentiments, you're kind of creating a judge of a judge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, point. So that whole iteration, that recursivity is maybe the best word, um, I think is crucial because it's in, that, it's in the continual motion, I think, that Smith really sees virtue. He doesn't want people simply to figure out what is virtuous and then go kind of plow their trade in virtue mindlessly and in, in a routine. He wants people to always be kind of seeing the next layer in this kind of more universal, right? Um, Self-improvement. Yeah. That it's a journey. And yeah. service of sort. Yeah. Duty, a sense of duty, as he puts it. Um, and here, I think, if you're talking about the passage I'm thinking of, is he's starting to try to create a theory of self, self-control. Oh, yes. And, and, and the ability to, with, to restrain oneself... I kept thinking in these passages of sort of the classic view of the English gentleman and uh, Kipling's poem If, which is a sort of theory of moral sentiments. A, a, you know, it's Kipling's laying out of what he thinks virtuous and, and noble about, about being a human. And uh, it's very much in line with Smith. So a lot of it is, is, about, is about self-restraint, mm -hmm. not getting overly yep. involved in whatever it is. We're, yeah, he's got a little bit of self-command here, and more comes later in the book. Um, okay, we're coming up here to the guy with the wooden leg. He soon identifies himself with the ideal man, with the ideal man within the breast. He soon he soon becomes the impartial spectator of his own situation. Um, so over time, you if a situation really persists you gradually come more to that view. I think that's a very interesting. In a way, and he's got other, other things in here, he says, in the end, time, the great and universal comforter, gradually composes 
the weak man to the same degree of tranquility which a regard to his own dignity and manhood teaches the wise man to assume in the beginning. Okay? Um, so it kind of suggests that we're all on the same path of moral learning. Not necessarily the same path, but sort of we all have, again, the same source, emanator. Um, uh, so, so there's some convergence in our different moral learnings. Um, and the idea that we all come to it over time reminds me actually of Kersner on entrepreneurship, where we tend to notice what is in our interest to notice. Where over time, in sort of in your habitat, you'll notice, oh, there's this that I could use for that. And there's this, like Robinson Crusoe on his island will notice that, oh, I could actually make a net out of this. And, you know, even though there's even no information, he just kind of thinks differently about it and he comes to these better views about it. So men, people come, tend to notice what it is in their interest to notice. And so this, if you create a parallel here to Kersner, it's like kind of implying that people have an interest to come to the more impartial view of their life. Okay. You know, if that, if that makes, if that's, that's a very interesting idea. Um, anyhow, um, the man who struggles the least, who most, okay, this is when someone, um, has loss of a leg, a child, or something terrible. The man who struggles the least, who most easily and readily acquiesces, acquiesces in the fortune which has fallen to him, very soon recovers his usual and natural tranquility. Okay, I don't know if you remember this. For a man with two legs, I don't know, if, did Smith have children? No, no, no. So it, it's a rather, um, again, it's a, there's a little bit of hubris there that... I don't, I'm not sure it's true yeah. uh, that to suggest that people who've gone through a, a, a horrific tragedy, the loss of a child or the loss of a limb, that they're soon restored to their former tranquility is a huge leap of <laughs> empirical faith. I, Did I, you say I, soon? No. No, eventually. I should yeah, have said sorry. Eventually. Yeah. Well, soon that's, enough. That's, that's soon true, enough. Eventually. Um, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, yeah, there's, I think there's probably some counter evidence yeah. around. Um, anyhow, um, okay, um, now he talks some about, uh, the man who shows both the amiable and the respectable virtues. Remember those two sets of virtues, sort of two different sides of the spiral. Amiable are ones that are more compassionate, more empathetic, empathetic, entering into, um, the other's problems and feelings. Whereas the respectable is is kind of containing your own and imposing on others less your own when you're sort of the person principally affected. And he says that um, the person who joins both of these most surely is the natural and proper object of our highest love and admiration. So it's definitely like both sides of the complete person kind of thing. Um, and he goes on to say that the two, in some ways, go together um, because being amiable, being compassionate, um, being thoughtful and humane, in some ways, um, when properly done, involve actually self-sacrifice, where you have to repress your own pressing concerns and needs to enter into those. And so there's a, there's a side that's actually being respectable in doing that, or at least the the ability to self-command, right, to step out of your own little problems and world so that you can be humane um, and get and give. 
is um, is those things are complements. He's saying, um, and that without without each other, the each can be sort of overdone and hardened. It would seem like humanity can just be excessive, too much grieving, too much commiserating, right? And being all stiff and proper yeah. and, and dry is it can actually be improper because um, you're not you're not making yourself interesting to others. Um, you're not letting them into your life. You're not you know letting their lives be enriched by you in a way. Um, so it's a kind of it's a kind of give and take, back and forth kind of thing. Um, yeah. What else have we got here? Uh, he's got different lifestyles, cultivate different characters and p- types of people. Um, first of all, he says in solitude, we tend to brood, brood on ourselves and think too much of our own problems and stuff. And that's why we need to go out into the world. He says conversation of a friend brings us to a better um, temper and that of a stranger to a still better temper. Yeah. Because a, a, a friend might indulge our brooding Whereas a stranger won't, and in a way that lifts us better out of the brooding, which again I think is a kind of interesting thing. It goes back to a kind of, um, you know, kind of universal humanity that by by actually connecting with a stranger, um, you get a wider perspective. You know, you're, you're a small part of the universe. Kind that's of a, that's a really deep. Uh, that's a very deep thing, especially when you think about travel, and, and we think of travel as a relatively self-indulgent experience, but. You think of travel as an opportunity to interact with people who aren't like you, who can't share your personal dreams and failures and problems. Inevitably, you've got to interact with them in a in a different way. And you know, you see this sometimes in a it's a kind of gruesome, but in a very small way. You know, someone's uh, you're having a fight, you're yelling with someone, and then the phone rings, and you pick it up, and you immediately assume a normal tone of voice. Uh, you could be having like, this huge argument with with your kids, say, yeah. and all of a sudden the phone rings, right. hello. And like, and you're thinking, wait a minute, where was that civil, pleasant person one nanosecond ago? Right. Well, how'd you turn that, that, that side of you off so easily? And you should do it more often, right? A lot of times you find yourself in a, in a situation where you realize, wait a minute, this isn't me. But sometimes it's hard to stop that. And, and that stranger turns that side off instantly. It's a mm-hmm. very interesting point. Yeah, and he's saying that the other person, the actual person, stranger, friend, um, often awakens uh, your impartial, your internal man in the breast. Okay, he says, um, the man within the breast, the abstract and ideal spectator of our sentiments and conduct. And by the way, where he says ideal there, yeah. I propose that that means in idea, like not real, like not actual, yeah. not not ideal in the sense of ultimate, you know, God. No. Well, for sure, it's and it's not. Uh, but I took it in the sense of a uh, meaning the way this is the man in the breast you ought, you, you really should have. This is the desirable man in the breast, the ideal one, the one, the best, the one you should have. It's a normative man in the breast, not a positive man in the breast. That's why I took oh, it. Oh yeah, it could be that too. Yes, he, the would-be spectator, the would-be better spectator, yeah, the, the, requires often to be awakened and put in mind of his duty. Okay, you <laughs> could put it that way. 
But that's so, that's a good reading. The by sleeping the, spectator. That's you right. Wake the, him up. The, say, Come the on. Waking the the sleeping better spectator. Yeah. You got to wake him up. Get him involved okay. to judge you. Yeah. By the presence of the real spectator. You know, that's the phone call. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. He says it right here. So, but the, but notice that he's saying that the man in the breast has to be put in mind of his duty. So his duty to whom? So he's got to have someone else he's reporting yeah, no, that's to, right. right? That's the onion or whatever. Yeah, it is, that's yeah, yeah. And, that, and ultimately going back to um, something universalist, I think, um, in principle anyway. Yep. Um, so the conscience itself has a duty. Um, strangers teach impartiality, as we've said. He issues a couple of imperatives: when you're down, go into the world. These are my words. When you're up, go to those independent of you. When you're up, things are going well for you. You feel big, right? Big you're, shot, yeah. You're big shot. Go, go to people who are independent of you, who don't care. And, and, yeah, they aren't going to suck up to you and exactly. you and tell you how great exactly. you are. Yeah. Um, and he just puts those right just in imperatives. I mean, they are just imperative yeah. sentences. He's got some, there's more advice in this section than, than, than there is a previously. Mm-hmm. He starts getting into war, like places where... Um, the part, the, you know, the awareness is lost, and he starts talking about war negotiation. The laws of justice are very seldom observed there. Um, a man who is in private transaction would be beloved and most esteemed. In public transactions is like laughed at as a fool and an idiot. So in other words, ordinary sort of wholesome organic virtues um, are, are, are almost spurned. In public transactions, okay. Again, I see this as a kind of anti-governmentalization theme. Um, in the most unjust war, it is commonly the sovereign or the ruler who are guilty. The su- oh, this is another point. The subjects are almost always perfectly innocent, and yet subjects are often punished as though they were guilty. Um, and this is out of a kind of nationalism. He's he's got some nation anti-nationalism. Um, moments here as well. This is a this is an injustice to pub, to punish subjects in the enemy nation that really were not in any way um, guilty of what the sovereign and the rulers had done, the government had done. Um, and he starts talking about hostile factions. Um, both rebels and heretics are those unlucky persons, the weaker party. So in other words, you know, victors write the history. Um, and they get often very t- extremely punished by the victors and the powers. In a nation distracted by faction, few preserve their judgment untainted by the general contagion. Do you remember that one, Russ? Faction in, in society. And he says, uh, in, a, in a nation distracted by faction, I mean, think about our so-called liberal versus conservative struggle which I think is just ridiculous contagion of groupthink. A nation distracted by faction, few preserve their judgment, untainted by the general contagion. Yeah. I love that. It's beautiful. It's kind of like this political culture or factional culture is cultural pollution, contagion. Um, more along these lines, a true party man hates and despises candor. And in reality, there is no vice which could so effectively effectually, effectually disqualify him f- uh, for the trade of a party man as that single virtue. So, in other words, candor is selected out of read politics. Read the next sentence. Go, I'm okay. sorry, I just read off my notes here. Yeah. Go ahead. He says, the real, the real 
revered and impartial spectator, therefore, is upon no occasion at a greater distance <laughs> than amidst the violence and rage of contending parties. You know, he's saying you know, it's essentially an amoral activity. There's no – right. the, the spectator has been, been pushed off into the distance in the name of partisanship. Uh, to them, it may be said that such a spectator scarce exists anywhere in the universe. Even to the great judge of the universe, meaning God, they impute all their own prejudices – Right, they invoke God for their self-interest. He says, even the great judge of the universe, they impute all their own prejudices and often view that divine being as animated by all their own vindictive and implacable passions. Of all the corruptors of moral sentiments, therefore, faction and fanaticism have always been by far the greatest. So, to me, that was Smith's view of political maneuvering yep. and, and yep. The, the political marketplace yeah. as being essentially pe- people, destructive. If people were to listen to this and say, who are you two guys kidding? You're the strongest ideologues, you know, in the potosphere or whatever. <laughs> um, it's like, well, the point, yeah, we're ideological. Maybe we're factional in that sense. But the point is, is we want a government. I mean, we, I'm sorry, we want a society where it's not a matter of factions, right? If, if schooling like churches were degovernmentalized, it wouldn't be. I guess churches, in a way, are factional. I mean, it's not a great example. No, but I think it is a good example. Okay. It's not just faction. You're right. Doesn't you're mean right. Distinctives. He means he means going to battle to get other people right. to do what you're doing. Right. And and fighting to join over the your, ring of power. Yeah. And so to me, to me, it's the issue of 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 creationism versus evolution in the schools. Exactly. Why should that be a political issue? Go to the school where you want your kids to learn whatever yeah. it is. And, and, no, nobody sits around and uh, – Right. Uh, it, anyway. That, that, There's no Republican bundle of groceries and Democrat bundle of groceries right. at Safeway. Yeah. Just buy what you like. Yeah. And, and, and so the more that we would see – And respect what your neighbor buys. Don't go look at your neighbor's cart and say – I don't like that uh, that you that you're that you're studying blah 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 for your kids. I want to decide what your kids study. Why should that be in the collective decision? Right. It's bizarre. Right. So we we may be passionate in our political views, but we're not, not factionalizing. But we're, yeah, we're for an anti-factional <laughs> society, actually. Well, I think we'll stop here. Uh, we got up to we were going to do parts three, four, and five, Dan, but we got up to part three, chapter three. So on the next podcast, we'll pick up where we left off, which will be part three, chapters four and five, and we'll see how far we go from there. I want to thank you, Dan, for, as uh, again, being our guide to the theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith. I want to thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.